0: On this special I'm sick edition of This Week in Linux, we've got a lot of distro news from Mandaro 19, IP Fire Firewall, and Arch Linux announces a new project leader. The UbiPorts announces that Unity 8 has been rebranded to Lomiri, and we got an awesome announcement from the Raspberry Pi because the baseline $35 version has now had the RAM doubled to 2 gigs. We've got a lot of app news this week to cover, starting with Shotcut Video Editor. The FSF is going to launch a code hosting service. Facebook becomes a premier sponsor of OBS project, and we'll talk about what that means. And Waterfox has been acquired by System 1, so we'll talk about that too. Finally, we'll close out the show with news regarding the Azure Sphere project from Microsoft. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tennell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and this is your weekly, despite being sick, source for Linux GNUs. news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimizing, managing, and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. And DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started on DigitalOcean for one month, actually no, two months for free, with $100 credit by going to do.co/dln. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit for two months by going to do.co/dln. Thanks again for, to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week in Linux and the entire Destination Linux Network. A first in the show this week is Manjaro 19.0 has been released, and this is the codename version of Kiria. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but I think so. This has kernel 5.4 LTS used in the release, and that's interesting because it's a rolling-based distribution using an LTS kernel, so it's a pretty interesting way of approaching that that particular thing. And this distribution has uh, many options for their desktop environments. They have a flagship offering, which is XFCE, and they claim that this one has a, only few can, can claim such, an, such a polished and integrated and leading-edge XFCE experience. And this is from a quote from their forum post and they say that they ship with XFCE 4.14 in this one and that they spend a lot of time focused on polishing the user experience for XFCE which is pretty cool because you have XFCE by default needs a lot of polishing it's great but it still needs a lot of polishing they also have decided to switch the default theme to Matcha theme and they also and speaking of the other additions that they have KDE and GNOME are other options that they offer they say that the KDE full set of Bre- Breath 2 themes are, have been updated, and this includes a light theme, a light and dark versions, animated splash screens, conf- console profiles, Quake skins, and many more little details around the design and the theming. They even say that they have done some ups- updates for the, the text editor Kate and have some additional color schemes added for that as well. They also offer a, an additional alternative to the kickoff launcher option, by just right-clicking and choosing alternatives, and this one is the Simple Menu uh, Plasmoid. I actually do really, really like Simple Menu. There's a couple things that I wish it had that would make it just perfect, And but overall, it's a fantastic Plasmoid in Menu, so if you haven't checked that out, you should definitely do that, and I'll have a link in the show notes for the information about that particular Plasmoid, in case you use Plasma on some other distro. They also have uh, the Gnome Edition, and this is based on 3.34 series, which also have included a visual refresh for several applications and the desktop itself like the shell. They have modified quite a bit. They also added a new GNOME layout switcher, which enables you to change your desktop layout easily with preset layouts, mimicking popular operating systems. So, for example, you could have quickly and easily you know, you could go back to Manjaro first of all, if you, whenever you change it so it's not like you change it and you can't get back you can go back to Manjaro uh, theme and said layout. But there's also the vanilla GNOME version There's the Mate edition. There's the Windows style, Mac OS style. And there's even a Unity style, which is pretty interesting. So you can try those. You can switch those out whenever you feel like it if you're using the GNOME version. They also have made it where it'll automatically change from between dark and light theme based on when night light is being used. And they've also done quite a few other things, like updating the PAMAC uh, installer. They say that it is more robust and reliable transaction backend. It uh, makes it possible for the updates to be much smoother now. And they also improved package sorting by relevance to the uh, GTK UI. And probably another big, big thing, and this goes to all of uh, Manjaro, is that they enabled snap and flatback support for by default. So you can now install snaps or packs very easily, using a new tool called BAUH, I think it's BA, I don't know, B-A-U-H is how you pronounce it. Anyway, if you want to learn more about this release and Manjaro itself, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some awesome news from the Raspberry Pi Foundation. So, celebrating the Raspberry Pi's 8th birthday, they have decided to double the RAM for the $35 version. So the $35 version used to have one gig of RAM, and now it has 2 down from the original price of the $45 version that did have the 2 gigs previously. So the Raspberry Pi founder Evan Upton revealed in his blog that the 2 gigabyte model of the Raspberry Pi, which was sold for $45 since it launched, will have its price cut permanently to $35 thanks to falling RAM prices. The price of the 1 gigabyte model will remain the same, so people are expected to just you know, use the 2 gigabyte version anyway. He also noted that how far the Raspberry Pi has come in the eight years since the original release of the first Raspberry Pi, compared to the Raspberry Pi 4, which it is currently available. So they say, here's the list of the things that he compared it to. So first of all, it has 40 times the CPU performance, 8 times the memory, 10 times the I.O. bandwidth, 4 times the number of pixels on screen, and 2 screens instead of 1, as well as dual-band wireless networking. So, that's the difference between the old version and the new version, which is quite amazing considering the price is still the same as the original version. Very awesome. I'm a big fan of the Raspberry Pi, and the Raspberry Pi Foundation has done a ton of great stuff for the community. As far as like, they even introduced people, a lot of people to Linux because of how awesome the Raspberry Pi board is. So, I also want to thank them for that because that is awesome. They also fixed an issue with the USB-C thing that they were having that was affecting some customers, so that's available now too in the latest version. So if you're interested in getting another Raspberry Pi, or if you're just never done one before and you want to get one, then you're, this is the best time to get one because it's the still the same $35 price, and now you get two gigs of RAM instead of one. So I've linked to this release of the you know the latest news about this, as well as the Raspberry Pi Foundation itself in the show notes below. Last week we talked about the Untangle Firewall and it's a commercial offering and I also wanted to talk about a latest release of another firewall distribution called IP Fire and it has version 2.25 Core Update 141 has been released and this is an open source project and has a lot of great value to it if you want to check it out. The latest update has a lot of improvements to the DNS updates. The biggest set of changes is around DNS in fact. They say that they, they have cleaned up many scripts in the UI, which allowed them to add new functionality, included a uni- unified page with all DNS settings. More than two DNS servers can be added for better load balancing and resiliency. The faster servers will be used automatically, depending on which one, depending the like ping-based uh, switching, and enhanced privacy over DNS over TLS and strict QNAME minimization. They also added a safe, surf, safe search filter for adult content and things like that that you can put on the entire network without having to use a web proxy. In case if you're putting this into a school or a library or something like that, and uh, there's also better workarounds for users with ISPs that filter DNS responses or break DNSSEC. Uh, TLS and TCP can both can be used as a transport instead as well because of this like to, to compensate for the breaking of DNSSEC or you know the DNS filter, DNS response filtering. They also add support for Go and Rust programming languages and implemented Python 3 support as well as trying to deprecate Python 2. Now it's still available to use Python 2 but eventually it will be deprecated because well Python 2 itself is deprecated so it makes a lot of sense that they're doing that. They also added support to use LVM or logical volume manager devices and the in the latest version of IPFire. The intrusion protection system now filters packets to and from OpenVPN clients as well. So there's quite a lot of great stuff in this latest release. So if you want to check out a open source free software firewall, check out IPFire 2.5 core update. Well, 2.25 core update 141. Y'all need to up fix your uh, versioning system. That's a, uh, it's kind of odd. But anyway, I'll have a link to all that in the show notes below. Up next in the show, Ubports has rebranded unity 8 to Lomiri. so unity 8 is a form is a desktop environment that was created for well i guess more than that but it was an environment made for the ubuntu touch system when canonical was in control of it but there's some issues with the naming of unity even the unity 8 plus all the other versions of unity that ever existed so it makes sense that they're going to be doing this and they also gave some reasons to why so that ubiport says that Lomiri is the operating environment for everywhere phone tablet laptop and desktop that's why I have, you know, corrected myself, calling it a desktop environment. It features a slick and easy-to-use interface based on the design of its predecessor from Canonical's Unity desktop environment. So they, so here's the, some more details about like what's happening. So what's being renamed is Unity 8 that contains the shell. This will become LoMiri. The Ubuntu UI toolkit will become the LoMiri UI toolkit. The Ubuntu download manager will become the Yellow Miri download manager, and some other things, but mostly it's the, you know, front-facing stuff. They actually aren't going to be changing a lot of things as well. So they in their announcement, they have a part about what's not being renamed. So Ubuntu Touch, the conversion operating system, shipping Lomiri, the open store, and confined applications remains the same name. Now, I would kind of argue that it'd be better to change that name, but at the same time, I understand why you'd want to keep it because Ubuntu Touch was very popularized by Canonical. But, you know, I guess, you know, either way, it could you know there's a good there's pros and cons to doing either one but anyway they also said they're not going to be changing the components which don't use the unity or ubuntu name such as qt mirror or morph browser and others because they don't need to be renamed really then they say any components which are already being used by other projects and accepted into other distributions for example gsettings-cute uses the com.canonical.gsettings dbus namespace However, it has been already been accepted by Debian for use with a deepened desktop environment, so they don't want to change that either. So this is pretty interesting, and I think it's a good idea that they're going to be renaming it, because Unity 8 has, well, it has confusion as to what difference between Unity 8 and Unity 7, which is massively different, because Unity 7 is a GTK-based desktop environment, and Unity 8 was a Qt-based desktop environment. And it's actually kind of a shame that Canonical dropped it, but because Unity was quite good, and the cute version was even better. They even had one in 2000 or 2012 for 1204 they had a cute version, which was was what they should have kept a long time ago. But anyway, that's a tangent for another day if you're interested. I'll make some more videos about that. Just let me know in the comments below. And uh, yeah. But I think it's really good that they're changing it because there's a lot of name conflicts because how often when you mention Unity on Linux when do you, when people go do you mean the game engine? Cuz Unity 3D is the name of the game engine and it's been and it was created prior to Unity desktop environment, and also for longer. It was around longer, and it also got... Well, that's redundant, but I'm sick, sorry. And they also... Uh, not only is it, you know, a conflict, but Unity 3D is a huge project in comparison to the, the E, so it makes sense that they would change it. And uh, I applaud them for making this decision, because it was necessary, and yeah, good job. If you want to learn more about this information, this release notes or announcement, I guess, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is Arch Linux has a new project leader and a new project leader structure as in how they are deciding it because previously Aaron Griffin, he was the project leader of the of Arch Linux since 2007 and he's been involved with it for a long time and also he helped popularize it in many ways but he says that he's stepping down because he, wants to, he doesn't have as much time as he wanted to to invest in the project. And so that they he wanted to you know put promote someone into that position who would do better and have more time to do it. So they've also actually decided to make a new process to decide what new leader will be, what a new leader will be because he was he had it for so long that it was just because that he took over from someone else. And you know they didn't really have a process to hand over the lead project leader uh, position. And now they do. And it's actually kind of similar to how Debian does it. They say the new processes are determining future leaders will be staff voting for new leaders and the, uh, the uh, Arch Linux project leader will hold a two-year terms moving forward. The newly elected Arch Linux project leader based upon the staff voting is, I'm sorry if I butcher this, but I'm going to try, Levente Polyak. If I was any remotely close, please let me know. Uh, Levente has been a long-time Arch Linux developer and part of the project's security team for a while. So Arch Linux new project leader is... Levente Polyak and they also have a new structure, so I uh, congrats to them on you know fixing that issue because that is something that you kind of have to deal with when you get a project to a certain size. Not everybody's going to be able to be the leader of that project for a very long time, and having a new structure like this is much better because it also provides new ideas, can be switched around. You know, when you have a new project leader, you could have new ideas that will bring in every two years or whatever, You know if they're not renewed kind of thing. But it's pretty, it's pretty cool, and uh, congrats to them for doing so. And if you'd like to learn more about this news, I'll have a link to the release notes or the news post from Arch Linux in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the housekeeping section. So in this section, I'm going to let you know about things that are happening with the show and the network and the channel and etc. First of all, as you can tell in the title, I'm sick, but the show goes on. And I've said this multiple times so far, but uh, yeah... You know, it's basically just excuses of why I'm not going to be editing that much. But to be fair, I also wanted you to know why I'm doing it because, well, I woke up this morning sick, and it's not going to let—I'm not going to let the show, you know, not be made this week. So of course, I decided to make it while I'm sick because that's just what I do. However, with that said, I think I might still take a shortcut here and there when it comes to editing. As so, keep in mind if I make a mistake in this episode, it's probably delirium. Okay, I'm not that sick, but the time by the time I finish this show, who knows, I might be. Out of curiosity, I checked to see if this has happened before on the show, and it did on episode sixty-one, which is almost like a year ago. So this is not really important, but just interesting to know because you know if I go to the doctor sometime soon, it'd be nice to know when was the last time I was sick. And having a record of it through a podcast is pretty cool. Also, kind of d- disturbing. So, yeah. And if you appreciate my commitment to the show and would like to take pity on me, you could help make this show possible by considering becoming a patron of Tux Digital. By becoming a patron, you are directly helping me finance the show and the channel overall. So uh, also you get special rewards like joining me in the new monthly patrons chat live streams that we'll be doing and many more things. And to the awesome 78 patrons of Tux Digital, I want to say thank you so much, very, very much for helping me create this content. And next up, Tux Digital and This Week in Linux are now on Library. So Library describes itself as a secure, open, and community-run digital marketplace. Essentially, it is a competitor to YouTube that uses blockchain technology to power the platform. And it's an interesting idea, for sure. I think the, the idea of how it works, I don't really fully get how it works because it's pretty complicated. But it is still pretty awesome, and so far, my usage of it, I've been a fan In fact, I've contributed code to Library since implementing it for the channel, so you could say it's getting pretty serious. Up next, there's also the new DLN podcast, or Destination Linux Network podcast, called Hardware Addicts. Hardware Addicts is a new podcast about computer hardware and technology. It's a really fun show and has all sorts of stuff in computer hardware, such as routers, network attack storage, aka NAS, there's also tips for beginners for choosing a camera, breakdown of PC cooling systems, we also talk about thermal paste, and many, many, many more things. I'm also one of the co-hosts of the show, so I might be a bit biased, but I think it's a great, great show. The Destination Linux Network YouTube channel now exists. It used to be the Destination Linux Podcast YouTube channel, but we've now converted it over to the Destination Linux channel, which means it's a kind of a consolidation of all the shows in in, in, the, in the network in one place. Now, it's not completely it's not something that you could do kind of replace tux digital i still want you to be subscribed to this channel because the show will still be posted on this channel as like the main channel just because it has the following from this channel and it just kind of be complicated to switch it over but also because i'll be making still making new new content on the tux digital channel for various different videos and that kind of thing in fact i'll go ahead and let you know that in the next video whenever i'm not sick by the way The next video I'm going to be releasing is a Firefox Containers Tabs video. It's basically a follow-up to the seven reasons why I'm a fan of Firefox, and it's basically going in-depth into the number one reason that I like Firefox. So if you're interested in that, be sure to subscribe and check it out. This is more of a new approach for like a one-stop shop for all the shows. So like each individual show, each episode is going to be posted on that channel. But you know, again, like this content will, st- a lot of the content will still be here. It's kind of like an attempt to introduce people to all the content that you might not know about, and it's just a way to consolidate some aspects of it. In fact, uh, Hardware Addicts, uh, DLN Extend are both sh- uh, podcasts that, uh, and also Destination Linux, of course, are podcasts that only are posted on that channel. So it's good to be bo- to subscribe to both the Tux Digital channel and the Destination Linux Network channel. So be sure to do that. Another DLN thing I want to talk about is the forum, a.k.a. the community. So we have the DLN forum. So it's, it's a way to, to you know join the This Week in Linux community and the Destination Linux community because we've combined all of our efforts in that sense to use the single one great place, and that's the DLN forum. So on the forum, you can talk about all the great content available on the network, share tips and tricks you found through your Linux journey, get help from a wide range of users, or just hang out with fellow Linux enthusiasts and open source enthusiasts as well. DLN Forum is also a great way to interact with me because each episode of the show is posted on the forum and comments are not only welcomed, but encouraged. The best thing about DLN Forum is no matter what user level you are, a beginner or a master pseudower, you'll always be able to enjoy the most the forum itself because it is not just a discourse forum, it's also a community. And finally for the housekeeping section, the Humble Bundles Galore are still available if you'd like to. We talked about this last episode. Uh, there's a there's one that's no longer available, but uh, most of them are still available. A couple are only available for the next day or so, or less. So if you're interested in checking it out, I'll have links to all the ones we covered, which is the VR Bundle, a Tabletop Bundle, uh, the Game Development Bundle for uh, called Best of Polygon, also a Cybersecurity 2020 by Wiley Bundle, as well as a Bloodshot by Valiant Comics Book Bundle, So if you want to check out any of those, I'll have a link to those in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to switch to app news, and the first application we're going to talk about is Shotcut. Shotcut 20.02.17 has been released, and if you're not aware, Shotcut is a free open-source cross-platform video editor that supports Linux, Windows, and Mac. The latest version, 20.02.17, Introduces a lot of new things. First of all, they introduce low-resolution preview scaling, and as the window, the video preview area usually only occupies a fraction of the screen while editing, the new feature will set the processing feature or the processing resolution to roughly the same size as the preview window, which makes editing less processor-intensive. It's available in the, syst- the settings under Preview Scaling section. If you're using a larger or high DPI screen, you might want to edit at a higher resolution and Shotcut offers uh, other options for this preview rendering for like 4- 540p or 720p in addition to the 360p that is typically used in the preview scaling. There's still a processing cost though down to the, like so the source video and the preview resolution. So this is still not a silver bullet or magical cure for performance issues. This feature will more likely be beneficial when you have like low resolution proxies are used and they also have plans for implementing that in the uh, new version of 20.04 in April. And some filters don't really work that well with the preview scaling. So when you use those, they will still process them at the full project resolution. But this is great that they're doing this because it makes it a lot easier for people to have, who have lower spec hardware to be able to use Shotcut more seamlessly or you know, just have better performance overall, which is fantastic. They also added a new audio pitch filter, which has a speed compensation parameter so that you can copy the speed value from properties into the filter. It's useful if you want to keep the audio at roughly the same pitch while changing the speed of a clip or whatnot, which would, you know, maybe for comical reasons or something like that. I don't know. But also they've added some more transitions to the the application, Uh, actually 150 more transitions have been added, including a new matte transition, which is fantastic. Uh, Matt Transitions, if you're not aware, is a really cool way of using one video to transition from another video, well, from one video to another. It's weird because it's basically having this animation that has transparent background in the video, which, if you're not aware, is totally possible and pretty awesome. And I actually talked about Matt Transitions in my uh, Caden Live talk at the the Southeast Linux Fest conference you can check that out, and uh, I'm not sure exactly when I start talking about that, but towards the middle of the videos when I start talking about the matte transitions, because they're very cool, and I also demonstrate what they can do, uh, because it's really hard to describe them just you know verbally, so it's better to see them. So I'll have a link to that video in the show notes below. And they also, what's really cool about this is that using matte transitions, it's kind of difficult, because... A lot of the times you need to find uh, videos specifically made for that purpose. And what's really cool is that they put together a nice collection of those uh, those options on their resource page, which is pretty awesome. They also have done other enhancements, including added a few more uh, export presets, like uh, FLAC audio, which is great because every I think every video editor should offer that so you can do processing with a lossless codec. I mean, you can do that with WAVE, but FLAC versus WAVE, like WAVE is a lot higher file size, and it's really hard to tell the difference between FLAC and Wave, depending on how much of an audio file you are. Personally, for me, hard to tell the difference. But they also added support for uh, ProRes HQ and other ProRes formats as well, so that's pretty cool. And they've also done a lot of other fixes and other refinements and that kind of thing. So if you've never heard of Shotcut, it is a really cool editor, and I think it's actually kind of somewhat more intuitive than other video editors. There's the way to transition a video from another video, to do like a basically a fade or a dissolve transition, you just grab one clip, hover it over the another clip, and just drop it and let it go, and it essentially creates it automatically, and it's really really nice. So intuitively, I think Shotcut is quite good. Uh, there are some issues of, about about you know pros and cons for every application. So there's you know you know getting used to this. You're gonna, it's kind of like the default layout is a little wonky, and you kind of get got to get used to it. But overall, I think Shotcut is a really really good video editor. So check it out. Up next in the show is some more app news, but this one's more of a application software code hosting service, and that is FSF, or the Free Software Foundation, is looking to launch a code hosting platform this year. They'll call it, be calling it Forge, and it'll be based on an existing software solution that they can adapt for their purposes. This will be kind of to complement their existing code hosting service that's you know pretty aging in terms of Savannah. You know it, it needs updating, so it makes sense that they're going to be doing this, which is actually quite good. Uh, If you want to have an an option that you don't already have, that you are not, you know, if you want to have a transitional option, that's if you care about like the free software ethical aspects of it and that kind of criteria or whatever, this might be something to check out. But anyway, options are being evaluated based on practical and ethical criteria, such as whether the JavaScript is deemed free software with a Libra JS, Libra JavaScript, and other strict free software requirements. While GitLab is close to what they want, it's already been ruled out because it still uses Google ReCAPTCHA and various other items they say would cause them to need to fork GitLab because it is quite complicated and contains other non-free ethical issues. I don't know what those would be, but I understand the whole Google ReCAPTCHA being a problem. I don't like using that either. The lead contender is uh, Pajor? Pajor? I don't know. It's a system that Fedora made. And they also have some other issues with it, though. They say that it's uh, they have some reservations because JavaScript is required for a pleasant experience. So they're also looking at GitT and SourceHut. SourceHut is actually pretty cool because it's made by Drew Default. He's the developer for Sway window manager, which is the i3 implementation or i3 inspired window manager for Wayland. So it's pretty cool because he basically made SourceHut for the usage of Sway. So it's pretty interesting that they're considering that, and I'm curious because. They also say that they plan to do contributing improvements upstream for the new Forge software, whatever they choose, to boost its score on the GNU ethical repository criteria. And they also uh, are trying to do, like, for example, they want to, you know, just do more work to improve it overall. And that's pretty cool. They do say something that's interesting, though. is like they say our tech team is small for the size of the network we maintain, and we don't have any full-time developers we work who work for the FSF so we are, are limited to the amount of time we can spend on software we choose we'll communicate with the upstream developers to request improvements and help clarity on questions related to ethical rep- repository criteria it's pretty interesting that fsf doesn't have developers even though it's a pretty big foundation has been around for decades so i don't know just interesting but overall uh, if you're interested in checking out a you know a you know the uh, the options that they might be get, i'll just have a link to this uh, announcement on the Uh, In the show notes. I'm sick. Did I tell you that? Up next in app news, OBS has announced that Facebook has become a premier sponsor for the project, OBS being the open broadcaster software that I use to make this episode or this show. So uh, this OBS is a free and open source cross-platform program for streaming and recording built with Qt and maintained by the OBS project. So Facebook has joined Twitch in being a top-level premier sponsor to OBS, and this means they have given more... They didn't say exactly how much, but they said that it's given more than $50,000 to the project. OBS mentioned they're now looking to grow their team thanks to the, the level of funding they have been getting. This being Facebook, th- there's been some negative reactions, like people acting like it's an acquisition when it's just Facebook making large donations. And to be clear, this is actually really good because any company that is using a project that is open source and benefiting from that that project should be donating money back to that project because of just ethically it's good because it's, I would consider it unethical to use something for, you know, making money and then never give them anything back for it. I think that's pretty bad. So it's really good that Facebook is actually doing something about it. I don't, I guess I don't, I'm not really sure what, Facebook uses it for, I suppose maybe for streaming to Facebook's uh, live stream thing, Facebook live thing, but either way, it's really good. Uh, OBS Studios business dev, Ben Terrell, explains that updates to OBS, like the big one coming next month, don't happen by accident. It takes de- dedicated hours of dedicated developers, uh, that's a you know redundant, to make that happen. OBS has one full-time developer working on it, and he wouldn't be able to do it if it weren't for these sponsors. So basically OBS would not exist otherwise. This is, I mean, that's very true because you need to, the amount of work put into OBS is impressive and OBS is so important and vital to me that I do have to, at at a principle, donate because it's just the logical and ethical thing to do. So OBS, thank you very much for being made. It is awesome. I love it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Anyway, having launched their sponsorship program just over one year ago, OBS describes the sponsorship as ensuring people everywhere will continue to have access to free, open, and easy-to-use tools to stream the content they love to the world. They went on to say, because of Facebook's contributions, we're exploring growing our team and potential of funding members of our development community as they work on a a myriad of individual projects aimed at improving the functionality of OBS. So this is actually kind of weird because Facebook is in the news that's in a good way, but it is good, so good job to Facebook for doing it. If you want to learn more about this, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Finally in app news, Waterfox has been acquired by System 1. Now, unlike Facebook not acquiring OBS, Waterfox has been acquired by System 1. And if you're not aware, Waterfox is a fork of Firefox browser that's been in development since 2011 by a single developer named Alex Contos. So Waterfox has been purchased by an L.A.-based ad tech firm, uh, System 1, and back in 2019. They, it only recently was kind of announced on the Waterfox post because the developer, Alex, said that this is the first time he's taken time off in, in like nine years. So that's why he didn't pay, make a post yet. But he's now making the post to let everybody know about it. And System One describes what they do as follows. If you've never heard of them, which prior to this announcement and the, also the Start Page announcement, I hadn't heard of them either. But apparently, they have a lot of uh, properties that they control and run and everything. So they, they say we use our best in class technology platform and marketing capabilities to build and grow brands and businesses in three areas publishing, search, and applications and services we have assembled an incredible group of data scientists and engineers made several strategic acquisitions and expand our offices around the world and we're just getting started this is based on you know their website about their about page and business, bizjournals.com describes system one as having developed a pre pre-targeting platform that identifies and unlocks consumer intent across channels including social native email search market research, and lead generation rather than relying solely on what consumers enter into their search box. You unlock consumer intent. That's, that's an interesting statement. System 1 is keeping Alex on board, and they've worked with him on providing a team of developers, which Alex says that he is strongly vetted and have met in California where System 1 is located. So Waterfox is actually based in Europe, but the company that owns it now is based in the U.S., so in theory basically so when people asked him what uh where is the dir- jurisdiction still apply he says it's still a european jurisdiction. So he says over the past few years there has been an increase demand for privacy tools and, syst- and services. Uh this is oh sorry this is not Alex saying this. This is actually a he says that at syst- this is a system one thing. They say at system one we believe everyone has the right to control their data, protect their privacy and be safe online. We therefore see it as our duty to bring privacy solutions to market that can benefit from our capabilities. They say we actively develop, invest, and inquire privacy services and products for our owned and operated sites, including those we have acquired in which we have invested. We practice a comprehensive approach to privacy, including honoring our improving or improving upon the privacy policies of the companies that we acquire or invest, expanding feature sets and improving the user experience of products without compromising the user privacy, and marketing products to wider audiences while maintaining our commitment to user privacy. This is interesting because Alex says that he describes System 1 as pivoting to a more privacy-oriented products, and it appears that their website, they are attempting to rebrand for that purpose. So if you're not aware, also System 1 has purchased or acquisitioned uh, a search partnership with StartPage, and uh, I assume there's going to be some kind of integration with Start Page and Waterfox as well. But uh, it, it's pretty interesting because there's a lot of people who have been very negative about this. And uh, in fact, there's been many rumors and stuff, not rumors, but opinions being provided that, uh, you know, that their pivot is just like enhancing the value of the data that they're collecting by hiding it from a co- the competition and like maybe doing a, you know, a search engine data collection and ad insertion would on a on the Waterfox browser because by having the browser itself, you kind of you know control the ability to change the ads anywhere on any website. And I understand there's some concern there, and I don't really have a real response on that one because System One is a tech company or an ad company, and they have been around for a while. They also own like MapQuest and HowStuffWorks.com and some other stuff. So it's pretty interesting because this is the first time I've actually heard of them. Prior to you know, you know the updates, I didn't know like I didn't know they own MapQuest and how stuff works until I you know found this note this, this notice from Waterfox, and um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I don't really know what I think of this. I think that if System One is genuine about their care about privacy and security, then this would be fantastic because Waterfox will be able to get a lot of development and improve heavily. And if they're not, well, obviously that would be bad. So let me know what you think about this topic in the comments below or on the Destination Linux forums thread for this episode because I am very interested into learning what you think about this because I am sort of torn. But yeah, links in the show notes. And finally this week, as your Sphere reaches general availability. So, if you're not aware, Azure Sphere is Microsoft's integrated security solution for IoT devices and equipment. And this is, more, now it's like general availability means it's now a, a widely available for develop, development and deployment on enterprise levels and that kind of thing. And they say it connects microcontroller units embedded within IoT devices. The platform operates a new MCU crossover class that combines both real time and application processors with built in Microsoft security technology and connectivity. That's a lot of buzzwords. So Galen Hunt, an engineer and managing director of Azure Sphere, describes the internet as a cauldron of evil, while quoting James Mickens, a former colleague at Microsoft Research. A cauldron of evil. I mean, there's probably some truth to that. And he describes in the interview, Style release notes, that Azure Sphere has four components to make it work. Certified chips that are built by Microsoft's Silicon Partners, and currently they're coming from NXP and Qualcomm, but there'll be more options in the future. There's also a secure operating system designed for that hardware, which, by the way, the reason why it's on this show is because the secure operating system is Linux-powered, and that's what they're referring to, because Azure Sphere is a Linux-based operating system. But I wanted to talk about this one because I think this is an interesting topic that Microsoft is making their own distro, albeit for IoT. And they didn't mention at all that it's Linux-based anywhere. The blog post or the interview-style release notes does not include whatsoever that it's Linux-related or Linux-based anywhere in the whole interview. So I thought that was kind of interesting. When they first announced it, they were all about like, hey, this is Linux, you know, that kind of thing. And now when they actually release it for everybody's you know general availability, they don't mention it at all. So I thought that was kind of interesting. The cloud-based Azure Sphere security service, which... Galen says, connects the every single Azure Sphere chip with every single Azure Sphere operating system and works with the operating system and the chip to keep the device secured throughout its lifetime. By the way, this is the third one. And the fourth thing, or fourth component, says the security and e- expertise of Azure team, which will be constantly updating and migrating new threats. Or mitigating, not migrating, mitigating new threats. Azure Sphere can be used on, uh, on an a- 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 IoT device or an IoT hub for sending traffic from non-Sphere IoT devices through Azure Cloud instead of exposing them to directly to the Internet and your local LAN. Microsoft Research has dubbed this type of device as a new class called the Guardian Module. Sure, why not? It's actually kind of interesting because you could do that with your own like uh, VPN router, sort of, uh, related to like IP isolation guest network is the term. But Guardian Module kind of sounds better. I will give them that. Uh, I think this is interesting because, one, it is pretty cool that Microsoft is making a Linux-based operating system for Azure Sphere. I think it's also kind of annoying that they don't acknowledge that it is Linux-based in their release notes at all. So that's problematic to me. But, hey, still, it's pretty interesting. And I also want to do like a quick follow-up to the previous episode where I talked about the uh, Microsoft Defender. Uh, and I kind of said that I don't know of anybody actually asking for it. And it turns out quite a few people have asked for it. And it's because the there's a lot of, like, enterprise companies that require some kind of, like, deal with Microsoft. So having it supported on Linux makes it a lot easier for people to use Linux in their enterprise experience or their enterprise workload. So that is pretty cool. And uh, it is interesting to see what Microsoft keeps doing for their hearting Linux thing. Uh, that's quoted by air quotes, by the way. And uh, I am interested to see what keeps coming with Microsoft because, you know, they announced this a couple years ago and now it's finally available. So I want to see what happens there. But, you know, best of luck to Microsoft. I probably won't trust them ever, but I'm open-minded at least. So there's that. If you'd like to learn more about Azure Sphere, I'll have a link to the uh, release notes for this, well, interview type thing in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like what I do from this show, please smash that like button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel and the This Week in Linux podcast, then you can do so with multiple ways. You can go to tuxdigital.com contribute to find all those ways, which include PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and more. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigitalcom slash affiliates. And if you want some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux as I'm a co-host of that show. And also in this this current episode and the next episode I wasn't sick on, so it will hopefully not be hindered by that. I still have to edit it, though. So hopefully I still get it out in time. Anyway, thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.